Okay, I think uh, the time has come for us to get started again with our next panel. Um, we've talked about U.S.-Japan defense, trade, and technology cooperation in the broadest sense, in the strategic sense. We've talked about uh, some of the technologies and institutions that will be that can that can be part of this technological cooperation. We've talked about what the response of China may or may be and is to this kind of defense trade cooperation and the role of uh, role of a third offset and others. Now it's time to talk about some of the ways, the mechanisms by which that kind of defense trade cooperation and uh, technological cooperation can get underway. And can and can take root and blossom. And for that, I'm delighted to introduce my friend uh, Jim Schaff, who is going to uh, introduce the other panelists for the next for our next round. Thank you very much, Arthur. Appreciate it. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my name is Jim Schoff, and I'm a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, where I run the Japan program there. And uh, this is this topic or issue has always been. Uh, something I've been very personally uh, interested in and, 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 and an issue that, that we follow uh, at Carnegie as well. So welcome to session four uh, of the day. In the morning, we heard a lot about how science and technology can be vital uh, to national defense, and it's also clear that this really increases the stakes uh, for science and technology competition uh, among, among countries. The good news is for the U.S. and Japan that along with competition, uh, we have a, a, a pretty healthy track record of, of cooperation uh, on this front, given our shared interests uh, and the friendship that has grown over the years. So in this session, we're going to be looking at the promising frontiers of U.S.-Japan uh, cooperation in defense trade and joint development, uh, this dynamic of blending competition and cooperation has actually been uh, a, a pretty, uh, has a long history in, in the alliance. Um, despite growing economic competition in the 1960s, 1970s, for example, uh, the U.S. and Japan created the cooperative programs on natural resources, medical sciences, and energy, uh, and space. In the defense field, uh, they established the Systems and Technology Forum in 1980. Uh, and at the height of trade tensions, uh, they created the joint uh, high-level uh, and working-level committee meetings on science and technology uh, cooperation, working on nanotechnology, advanced materials, clean energy, uh, ocean drilling, Arctic research, a whole host of issues uh, throughout the 80s and, and into the 90s and beyond. Now, in defense, we've struggled at times uh, with this balance between competition and cooperation, certainly the uh, advanced fighter FSX, the 1980s, 1990s, uh, was was a challenge, but uh, we've certainly managed to uh, overcome some of those challenges in the context of missile defense cooperation, had some uh, good success there among some other examples that, that were mentioned today. Um, I think we're poised to accomplish more going forward, uh, but to be successful, we need to think carefully uh, about how to create a positive environment for collaboration and uh, what is the best way to foster and support cooperation. And how do we balance the private and public roles? And what are the bureaucratic, legal, and market uh, realities that we face? And to discuss this, we have a really wonderful panel that Hudson has recruited and, and put together. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to introduce them very briefly now. You all have 
their detailed bios, but we're going to uh, begin with uh, Pierre Chow uh, to my left. I um, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. As <laughs> uh, the founding partner of uh, Renaissance Strategic Advisors and a co-founder of Enlightenment Capital, uh, he brings three decades of aerospace and defense strategy management consulting. He was a member of the Defense Business Board a few years back. Um, he'll start us off uh, with a, a kind of a broad overview. We also have Jim Armington uh, on the end, uh, who is Vice President for Japan, Global Sales uh, at Boeing Defense uh, Space and Security. Uh, with significant business experience with and in Japan, living in Japan for several years with both Boeing and Raytheon on top of a 20-year Air Force career. Uh, Adele Ratcliffe, uh, to his right, is Director of International Manufacturing and Innovation within the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy. Uh, most recently is the Director of the DOD Manufacturing Technology or Mantec program and the DOD's National Institutes for Manufacturing Innovation, now known as Manufacturing USA Initiative. So a lot of hands-on experience uh, in this blend between defense issues and uh, innovation and manufacturing. And uh, our, our cleanup hitter will be Farad uh, Jalinas. Jalinas. Right. Uh, as a partner uh, in the global international trade and uh, global mergers and acquisitions practice at uh, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have the firm written down. White and Case. White and Case, of course. Uh, and heads the firm's um, national security and uh, CFIUS uh, uh, practice. And he'll be introducing some of uh, his experience with, uh, with some of these legal bureaucratic aspects of, of uh, development and, and, and defense trade. Um, but let me turn the mic over to Pierre to, to get us started. And we'll go through um, some initial comments from all of the, the panelists first and then engage in a bit of, try to talk together about what this, this all means and, and then uh, elicit some input from, from the audience because we have some pretty experienced people in the audience as well. Um, so I'll let Pierre begin. So, um, good afternoon and thanks for the invitation. Um, this is Washington, D.C., so I couldn't resist. I brought a few slides. Um, uh, but it, it reflects actually a um, set of materials that we uh, had used in Tokyo just about two months ago where under the auspices of uh, the Society of Japanese Aerospace Corporations, we, we held a seminar and discussion on, on this topic um, in Japan. Uh, and uh, we've jumped on this topic only from the perspective of I think it's one of probably the most significant shifts in the defense industrial landscape um, in a generation, the potential of the opening of the uh, and the entrance of the Japanese industry into the broader defense marketplace. Um, and so uh, if, if we look at it from a corporate strategy perspective and how sort of the, the peers in the industry is looking at this, um, we certainly have uh, certain trends that are, that are sweeping across the industry um, that are impacting on, on this topic in and of itself. First off, the, the focus of the last 15 years, as everyone in this room knows, since it's a very sophisticated sort of defense knowledgeable um, audience, um, has been very much focused on the, uh, uh, the uh, counterinsurgency, uh, counterterrorism sort of fight, or what we call you know, the, the, the light end of the fight. Um, and yet, over the last uh, few years, the prospect of more near-peer conflict, the rise of greater threats has been 
starting to loom larger and is certainly entering into the planning thinking and certainly entering into the the strategic planning of quite a few people. And this, this shift from uh, the light back to the heavy is something that you can see palpably inside the Pentagon as well as MODs uh, across Europe as well as uh, throughout Asia. And so we've been describing the marketplace these days as being sort of very barbell-shaped, you know, with, with two ends of the barbell uh, uh, focusing, and in many cases, both militaries and I think companies are trying to decide which end of the barbell can they play or can they be at, at both ends. Um, and uh, contributing uh, to this uh, increased uh, dynamic environment, we have a growing set of technologies that are sweeping across the market space and that very much impact um, on the defense industrial landscape. And I'm, I'm sure you touched on many of these during the science and technology section. Um, but uh, uh, there are two elements that I would note here from, from one perspective. One, um, it's not that unusual, right? We have been through other technological sort of uh, uh, periods of change. Um, in fact, if you think about the technological shifts that were underway in the 1920s, 1930s, you know, very similar to the extent of the advent of radio, of electronics, of, of air as a new domain, um, and others. And so the adaptation to technologies and the disruption that it represents, as well as um, the opportunities that it presents, it, it's certainly there. Um, we just happen to be in a period where the maturity of the IT technologies um, is, is really, the impact is really being felt within the, the military domain. Um, and uh, the the fact that it's now occurring on a globalized scale is obviously something that, that everyone is, is reacting to. Um, and so this issue of U.S. technological superiority um, that is uh, uh, being eroded by the, the, the global changes in technologies and people deliberately targeting and trying to develop um, asymmetric uh, technological solutions to our asymmetric advantages um, has certainly been the topic of the day. And you probably had one of the best people to talk about that with Andy Krepinevich, um, uh, who's, uh, you know, one of the godfathers of the thinking around, you know, the, the third offset and, um, uh, and these topics. So I, I really don't need to dwell much here. But the key relevant point, I think, from a strategic standpoint is if you assume, take the premise that the West, which I will use as a broad, broadly uh, uh, or a loosely termed uh, word, uh, which would include NATO, you know, the United States, its NATO allies, Japan, right, that relies on technology um, as its uh, as the the part of the center of its military capability set and advantage, um, is seeing that um, that lead beginning to erode, and there's a desire to recapture that. I don't care whether you use the word third offset or another one. I think independent of administrations and who's president and who's there, that core fundamental need is, is, is present. Um, uh, typical for most administration changes, probably everyone will do the global search and replace and PowerPoint presentations and replace one word with another one. But it doesn't change the mere fact that you know what we're trying to do in terms of regaining a technological advantage where, where some has been lost or narrowed um, will be partly the name of the game for the next uh, you know half decade, decade. And if that's the case, 
then uh, the ability to tap into pools of defense technology and commercial technologies that can be leveraged draws you only to a handful of places around the globe if one wants to be fairly brutally honest about the assessment of where pools of defense research and development exists, right? The United States, the United Kingdom, France, Japan, uh, China, you know, to, to some extent, you know, it, that's probably where I, I would I would draw that list, and so it, it when you take a look at the Japanese MOD's list of top priorities of where they would like to spend money and take it at face value, and you work down your list whether that's missile defense or persistent ISR etc., um, uh, it should be in some ways no surprise that many of those match up in terms of the technology sets. That, uh, that the United States is, is interested in in terms of making sure that we maintain a, a critical technological advantage. Um, uh, by the way, uh, these slides are available for, for distribution. So, um, And I think it's, it's in the, the, the mere fact that there's that commonality of interest relative to technological uh, 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 and capability sets that matches along with the U.S. that will act as one of the key underpinnings of the potential opportunity you know, that, that we have. Um, and historically has been sort of uh, uh, the case uh, and, the, and, and the driver. I could probably also add in Europe on top of that to the extent of if you look at, once again, what the UK is interested in or what I would call you know, those countries that are interested in, in fighting along with the US on day one, right, the UK, um, you would see a very similar list as well in terms of capabilities. And so the UK-Japan treaty that was also signed is an, in is a, is an interesting sort of third leg in, in this overall picture. Um, and so the, 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 the relaxing of the rules or the, the opening up of the opportunity set that have been carefully prescribed, which I don't need to spend much time on because this is what this entire conference is about, um, I think is, is creating the opportunity set for uh, companies to, um, uh, to do some of the thinking. And it's here that I would pause a little bit that where we saw similar behavior, for example, when the US-UK technology sharing treaty was, was promoted ahead, there is this constant struggle between industry saying, hmm, I'd rather see you know, government to government programs first be established then we'll follow behind because we don't know how far to go. And yet in other cases they're saying, boy, if I wait for that, the opportunity will never occur and therefore I need to push ahead and perhaps just like uh, uh, Fulton had to build his steamship and sail it up and down the line to prove to the Navy that steamships worked, I think there's a certain opportunity set for corporations to, you know, to perhaps move a little bit you know, ahead of industry as uncomfortable as that, as that may be um, uh, in, uh, uh, given the, uh, the, the rapidity uh, or, or how quickly uh, development technology cycles are advancing. Um, uh, perhaps sometimes waiting for uh, you know government to government programs to to fully develop may not be the case, and we've certainly seen the opportunity and and how you can develop these relationships on a commercial basis. Commercial aerospace, for example, is a is a very good example, um, as well as if you take a look at. Um, uh, 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 certain U.S.-European uh, corporate relationships where it's gone a little bit ahead of sort of where the, the, the governmental relationships are. Um, 
And so if we think about where the three opportunity sets for uh, Japanese-U.S. Uh, relationships or, or opportunity sets, they, they occur in, in three domains. Um, one is the now the ability to sell uh, indigenously developed and core capability sets um, as a pure export. Uh, uh, and we saw the early attempts with the, uh, the submarine program in Australia, for example. Um, but I think there, there are others uh, that, would, that don't necessarily have to be about a platform or a, uh, or a prime uh, OEM product. Uh, the second one uh, opportunity set is probably one that is most familiar um, and has been the basis of the U.S.-Japanese relationship, which would be centered around co-development and, and licensed uh, programs back and forth. There's certainly a, an extremely long history of that, and so uh, we would not be treading any new grounds from that perspective. And the third one, which is maybe a little bit new and now feeds into this some of the discussions that are going on in the U.S. about third offset and how do you tap into commercial innovation, the ability for the U.S. defense industry to tap into Japanese commercial technologies, either directly or we think more likely probably through the Japanese aerospace defense companies, only because the defense industry has had a fairly difficult time of tapping into commercial technologies directly. And most commercial companies recoiling uh, a little bit in horror when they try to deal with uh, the government and all the acquisition rules, et cetera, right, on a pure commercial basis. And so, therefore, the familiarity of running those technologies through, um, uh, uh, through uh, an, in, an industry uh, uh, landscape uh, that's familiar might be a quicker way to get some of those technologies injected into uh, a defense or uh, into a defense landscape. Um, and if you think about some of the core technologies that Japan is actually known for um, these days, whether that's uh, robotics, automation, uh, UAVs. Uh, so for example, uh, uh, probably the densest and most active user of UAVs in a commercial setting is actually Japan with precision agriculture, right? Um, something that we're still struggling with because we're trying to get the FAA to sort out the rules in terms of how to use it. And meanwhile, there is IP being generated, concepts of operations being generated. I'm using a military term for a commercial application. But, um, uh, uh, but as a business models being developed um, in that that can certainly be leveraged, I would argue, into a, into a U.S. landscape um, or a global landscape um, if we only sort of are, are open our eyes and are willing to, you know, to engage from, from that perspective. And so if, if you kind of go through, you know, some examples, once again, the classic example that everybody has been using for this notion of taking and, and just bringing uh, uh, existing capability sets into the, into the open market space, uh, 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 people will point to the, uh, to the submarine program. But for example, in anti-submarine warfare, you know, the Japanese uh, uh, avionics and defense electronics capability sets is world class. Um, and the ability to partner with a Western platform manufacturer, uh, whether that be Boeing or anybody else, in terms of, of bringing that in and taking that to certain markets, for would be a good example of, 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 of this first case. Um, the second case.
case is uh, the future development of sixth-generation fighters, right? Japan's probably one of the few countries in the world, one that can absorb that kind of technology, let alone, you know, be working on that kind of technology, um, and also, frankly, have the budget to work on those kinds of technologies. Um, that's an interesting domain space um, uh, with which to, to think about, and I, we deliberately picked that as a controversial one only because of all the sensitivities around technologies um, and others, and, and which really truly highlights, the, you know, I think, some of the core topics that, that need to be addressed. Um, and the third one relative to leveraging commercial technologies, uh, for example, there are concepts of operations or concepts, technological concepts about swarming drones um, as one of, as a theoretical third offset-like types of technologies. If you actually really want to get that to work, you need to get those drones to be really, really cheap, right? It, otherwise, the whole concept doesn't work. And the ability to you know, produce the electronics at scale, at the capability sets, et cetera, right, is something, once again, that you would think that uh, uh, Japanese now commercial industry, if not Japanese defense industry, has, um, has certainly some uh, knowledge and capabilities about. And so the ability to tap into those technologies uh, becomes an enabler, uh, you know, we would argue. And so if you take a look um, specifically at some of the domains, they're the ones that... Um, that are of potential you know, uh, uh, core capability sets, whether that's maritime surveillance or ISR or automation and others. Uh, once again, the landscape is relatively fruitful. Um, and here, I guess I'm, I, we're being uh, the deliberate optimists uh, from that perspective. Um, uh, uh, there, there's quite a few fruitful places to go mining on the part of uh, both U.S. industry and Japanese industry in terms of finding places you know, for uh, cooperation and for, for opportunities. And so uh, this whole topic of, you know, we have this change in the landscape, this need for higher-end capability sets, technology is changing around us. I will add actually one more element. Um, not enough money in the budgets, either in the U.S. or in Japan or Europe, regardless of, again, what administration comes in and, you know, promises of, of increases, which I'm sure will be delivered. But there is, you know, essentially we still have 12 pounds of capability that we're trying to develop in a 10-pound bag. Um, the ability to leverage global technology, I think, is still, you know, one of the, the, the key components that's in place. Um, and the ability to sort of, you know, tap into these three different avenues of cooperation, I think, is, is where uh, we want to be going in, in mining. Thanks. That's terrific. Thank you, Pierre. That's a great overview and introduction to our topic, and you've got some very specific suggestions in there as well. Let's take it one step lower down from a, kind of a company perspective, not necessarily just your company. Um, but uh, Jim, uh, why don't you share with us some of your thoughts about, about okay, this Okay, great. Well, thank you. And that, a lot of uh, my points, I think Pierre teed up as well very, very nicely, and, and uh, maybe I'll add a little dimension to that. But I'm excited to be here and uh, part of this forum. I've been, many as you know, I see many friends in the room. I've been involved in U.S.-Japan Alliance for over 25 years now, for various uh, various responsibilities. Um, and I always, I've always thought that our two countries have enormous potential and a responsibility to collaborate in this in this defense sector. And uh, again, excited about the potentials. And 
it's for the good of our nations and for the good of the peace and stability of the, of the region and of the world that we do this and we do it right. Congratulations to the Hudson Institute for pr producing this event and covering this, this topic from many different angles. So I'm going to try to talk about an industry point of view, not just one industry, but in general. Um, but so first of all, industry has a, we have our um, I say we now that I'm part of it, but uh, we have our fiduciary responsibility to create value for shareholders. It drives our, our interest in, in a lot of what we do. But I would also add that even in a broad policy uh, perspective, the, the success of the U.S.-Japan alliance to preserve the peace and stability of the, of the Asia-Pacific and of the world is, is also very much in business interest because without it, we wouldn't, be, uh, we wouldn't have the market, growing markets that we've endured, enjoyed and that we expect in the future. So let me focus on specific industry perspectives on defense collaboration with Japan. We, we do, as we've talked, as we've heard before, have a new environment developing with new government of Japan policies opening the door for Japanese defense industries to participate in the export market. Uh, past policies limited, frankly, eliminated uh, those, uh, those opportunities, um, and the revision of the three Ps uh, suggests a very different future. So looking back, October 2010, uh, former, at the time, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was here in Washington, in fact, spoke, spoke here at Hudson Institute, uh, in part of his Make Japan Great Again campaign while he was out of government looking to get back in. Uh, he spoke about a malaise in Japan uh, at that time. Japan had been passed by China as the number two uh, economy in the world. Japan had been passed by China as the U.S.'s number two trading partner. And he spoke about uh, needing to re-energize uh, Japan's future. The two trends that he, he, he spoke that uh, were most disturbing were dealing with the rise of China, number one, and dealing with the Japanese deficit, number two. Uh, and to try to do one without considering the other would just exacerbate the problems with the other. An arms race with China would make the deficit impossible. Solving the deficit without, with, by cutting defense spending would, would certainly have consequences on the, on the defense side. So he was looking for a, not a third offset at the time, but looking for a, <clears throat> a new policy. In fact, he suggested the eliminating the, or opening up the three Ps for defense export would help energize Japanese defense industry to participate in a global market, to begin to, to grow on, uh, on resources outside of the, the Japanese defense budget. In fact, his, uh, his recommendations were also uh, uh, so widely supported by, uh, by the DPJ government at the time that they, in fact, implemented the policy change in 2011, late 2011. Uh, as we all know from, from history, and uh, now Prime Minister Abe is back in Japan uh, furthering those, those same uh, initiatives. The, um, since uh, 2011 then, or since that time, industry has been, has been looking at this as an opportunity, but also as a little bit of a dilemma. You know, what, what is industry going to do? What is industry going to recommend to governments? Do, well, how do we get the ball rolling to, to actually achieve our, uh, the, uh, the dream of, of defense collaboration within the alliance? Um, I was in Japan at the time, 2012. We, I was the co-chair of the American Chamber of Commerce Aerospace and Defense Committee, and we initiated a – we wanted to put out a joint statement with the K. Donren Defense Production Committee. So we spent a, several months uh, working up some policy recommendations for governments from an industry perspective. You know, what are the challenges seen from industry? And for the, any of you interested, I brought a few copies of that, uh, of that joint statement. But 
it, it sort of framed the, the, the path forward in four primary uh, categories. One, the government-to-government, government-sponsored co-development of needed defense capability. The second one was, um, uh, I believe, industry, as I think Pierre mentioned, industry initiative uh, from a, from a um, sort of a non-government uh, uh, research and development be faster and, and using maybe spin-ons of, of, of commercial technology. Um, the third was license production programs that we've been been uh, working with Japan for many years. In this case, flip it to to allow U.S. Com companies to license Japanese technology into defense uh, products in, in the in the world market. And the fourth one was uh, a single country sponsored program that both industries were would participate in. One would be a prime, one would be a subcontractor in typical uh, typical uh, defense uh, contracting method. Uh, so we briefed these out to the governments, and I think some of the some of the points were were adopted and considered. Um, the uh, commercial airspace example, I think Pierre mentioned before, uh, again very successful, uh, at least from a Boeing perspective, it has been uh, with Japanese heavy in, heavy aerospace industry playing a major role in not only producing the aircraft but now designing. Uh, some of the most, uh, the, so obviously, the, the safest and most efficient uh, passenger jets in the world in the world today. Um, not to make a Boeing commercial, but I think that's a good example of, of the kinds of uh, technology cooperations that's possible. Granted, defense is different. Uh, defense trade uh, has has some different uh, constraints that we'll have to factor into it. But again, in the dialogue experience since that time, we realized that even though Japanese policy authorized Japanese defense industry to participate in the defense trade, uh, in, in a democracy, public policy doesn't direct or compel. It, it, it's more about creating incentives and managing incentives. And, and that's what uh, I think really is still a factor that is developing, and that is the incentivization of Japanese industry to actually participate in some of the, some of the opportunities. As many of you know, Japanese industries, defense industry is structured differently than the United States. <clears throat> um, very concerned about reputational um, hazard associated with being a, a major commercial company being associated with defense programs. Um, and that's a real, a real f factor that they have to deal with. Um, profitability is another. Uh, uh, the um, concept of shared risk for, for new development programs in the United States. Uh, government shares, along with industry, especially, especially for a high-risk, aggressive uh, defense program, some of the risks that Japanese government is not yet, I don't think, developed that kind of risk-sharing model. And, and, and it, it fall, if it falls on industry to take all the risks, uh, obviously they're not going to be interested. And then opportunity cost. If a Japanese industry, largely commercial with a small defense uh, segment, the best and brightest engineers are going to be assigned to the the, the, the big deal global uh, defense programs, and, and probably less so to the to the I'm sorry, the commercial programs, and less so to the defense side. So these are just some observations, just from from trying to wrestle with this program, this problem, or this issue from an uh, industry perspective. But I think it'll work. Well, we need to continue to work on it over time. Some pros and cons on the commercial model. Um, pros, again, we know each other well between the U.S. and Japan, and we're confident that we can do, as, as Pierre mentioned, we, we could be the world leader in, in, in this, and we need to be now with the, with the growing uh, challenges. Um, and I mentioned uh, government sharing risk is another, uh, another lesson learned. Some of the technology areas, uh, again, from, from, from my perspective, I mean, they're broad. There's a lot of areas that, uh, that we can work together on, but 
immediate needs, infrared, infrared search and track systems, more advanced to be able to def detect small targets and stealthy targets. Autonomous control systems, which will take over some more of the routine tasks or leave demands on human decision making and allow better focus on mission, mission objectives. Lightweight composite structures, the stronger, more durable, enhancing mission efficiency, already creating advantages in civil aerospace with the uh, all-composite 787 Dreamliner and uh, the V-22 Osprey. And then the Internet of Things, as we talk about, is we're taking uh, old infrastructure or current infrastructure and housing and buildings and turning and, and automobiles and turning them into connected uh, devices in many ways, uh, you know, just still tinkering with so many things at home with um, with automated uh, thermostats that I can I can turn my, my house up or down uh, while I'm out of town and uh, turn things on and off and uh, and we're 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 going to see a lot more that can be done with existing infrastructure. For example, the F-15 fighters that have been around for some time have a lot of life left on them. Uh, upgrading the sensors and, and networks and data links and uh, and uh, electronic warfare systems on these aircraft can connect them with the with the fifth and sixth generation uh, very very well and much more affordably than, than completely redoing the infrastructure we have training and you have pilots already in place you have uh, bases already adapted so just to prime minister abe's dilemma of how am i going to advance capability with uh, with limited cost there's a lot that uh, the technology can do um, also improvements in maintenance and logistics um, big using big data to to predict and analyze uh, expected failure rates based on patterns and lessons learned worldwide in a particular weapon system can save save money and increase efficiency in, in, um, in uh, supporting the, uh, the military equipment. Uh, one of the more revolutionary opportunities might be sh uh, shortening the cycle time between requirements, innovation, and fielding of new capabilities. We're trying to do this. It's difficult on the defense side because of all the special rules, but it, it, it's being done very well in the, in the commercial sector, and we need to have that. We need to be able to do that if we're going to uh, keep pace with, uh, with, the, with the threats and the challenges. Oh, and so in summary, uh, U.S. and Japan industry, aerospace industry have proven how close partnerships, long trusting relationships, and hard work can bring evolutionary change to our commercial products. The government of Japan has created a, a unique opportunity for us to apply the same lessons to defense. Um, and uh, we we think these are, uh, are is critical that we, we take advantage of this uh, to ensure Asia, Northeast Asia remains safe for many years to come. So my time is up, but there's a lot more to talk about, and I look forward to questions. Uh, but again, I want to stress that uh, you know the incentivization of what you want to see happen is imp an important uh, thing to, to address in, in terms of uh, the government policies. Um, the uh, we, we're going to need to see some champions, I think, some, some really high-level political push to make some of these programs, uh, especially the the ground groundbreaking, uh, road paving types of initiatives. Uh, it's so easy for a, a well-meaning uh, collaboration to, to unravel at the at the at the uh, local level due to various problems that come up. It's not necessarily cheaper or or easier to do, but uh, some of these projects, I think, are going to need uh, strong government, uh, government to government push. Um, not to say that industry can't do our share on our own. So with that, uh, let me look forward to questions and uh, turn it back over to you, Jim. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Appreciate that. That's, uh, that's a, a very concrete, practical perspective, and I have some questions I want to come back to you 
uh, on uh, when we work through the panel. Um, Adele, let me turn to you. Tell us a little bit about what, what you've been working on and, and, uh, and your experience. You've been doing more with Japan recently, and I think that would be worthwhile to, to hear about that experience. Thanks, Jim. Well, you couldn't bookend uh, two people contrasting their experience in Japan more than Jim to my left and myself, as he has 25 years' experience and I have a little over 25 days' experience. <laughs> no, a little bit longer than that, but not much by time, time scales. I've spent the majority of my time in the Beltway at the national level talking about manufacturing dominance underpins technical dominance, right, and trying to drive that into the vernacular of the Department of Defense and, and national security implications of that for our nation. Uh, and as we lean on uh, an industrial basis, very different than what uh, Arthur wrote about in World War II, where it was mainly we relied upon an industrial base that sat here. Today's industrial base for the Department of Defense looks very different from that. It's neither monolithic nor is it U.S., right? As our uh, corporations have moved into a MNC perspective, a multinational corporation, so has our defense industrial base. So when we look at it from a national security implication, it's in our best interest to draw closer to our allies where our supply chain sits, right? And so our office manufacturing industrial-based policy that I sit in is a relatively new organization within the Department of Defense. And within, within that perspective, uh, focusing on using manufacturing industrial-based issues to grow our partnerships with our allies is even more uh, recent event for us, but no less important, as Jim outlined and others in front of us have outlined the implications of that partnership. Since uh, our organization planted a flag uh, in, in that arena uh, this year, um, I, in, in my movement into the international manufacturing uh, discussion, I've been to Japan twice uh, since August. So my observations are that. They're uh, a neophyte compared to Jim and others here today, but let me uh, just give you my observations about our uh, engagement with ATLA uh, and METI and the organizational structure along with some of their heavy industry perspective and what uh, it, opportunities and risk it poses for uh, us moving forward together. From an organizational perspective, we spent extensive time over there talking to uh, both ATLA and METI. And I think it's uh, to understand where they sit, it's important to understand who we, who we sat across from. From an ATLA perspective, uh, the frontline table was occupied largely by um, older, uh, uh, older citizens with a, a young bench behind them, um, we, which may serve well. I think it will serve well for Japan over, and ATLA over time, right, uh, for one of the other, for my third point that I'll make today. Uh, we largely leaned upon our translator uh, in our conversation. As we moved to our discussions with Medi, we had a completely different experience where we had a, a, a middle-aged young uh, group of folks that we engaged with and we uh, could communicate largely without our translator on, on either side. Many of them had done rotations over here in the U.S. Uh, with uh, a number of, uh, uh, of our federal agency organizations. So I think uh, you know, that, that is telling in terms of uh, the JMODs uh, and, and, and Outlet's desire to, uh, as part of their involvement in the easing of the three Ps and their movement into more of an export, uh, defense export position, I think that that uh, understanding uh, Atlas organizational structure, its relationship with METI and MEXI, which was the third industry uh, agency that we were introduced in to, which was the Minister of education and culture. 
which happens to do all of their research and development. So I'd say the first observation uh, related to our partnership is with risk and opportunity is organizational structure. Uh, until, uh, uh, let's say, January of this next year, our Department of Defense organizational structure, everything that we need to kind of move forward in terms of de uh, both decision and investment strategy is contained within ATNL. I would say for those of you who are familiar with the 2017 NDAA Act, that's going to possibly be uh, shifted at least to some degree, and what degree that is, we're going to find out over the next year. But clearly the relationship between ATLA, METI, and MEXI in this case is going to be critical to Japan's ability to respond to its pivot. Uh, there is very little, seems to be very little, um, direct influence of ATLA on the R&D strategy uh, within MEXI, and it's unclear in conversations uh, up and down the, those three organizations. Uh, whether they've internalized the S&T strategy that was talked about earlier today and how they need to move forward in their investment strategy. So that's uh, with, within R&D. That's one thing. Um, two, obviously, Medi's existed for a lot longer than Atlas, so, you know, they take a big brother approach. But over time, I think we have to decide, is that in the, they have to decide, is that in the best interest of where they want to move forward on? And uh, it'll be interesting to watch uh, the growth opportunities of Atla in the balance of that relationship over time, and specifically in the influence of the R&D investment that is happening within their university system, which likely <laughs> needs some review as well. Um, from our conversations with both METI and ATLA, uh, the majority of the research done at their universities is largely um, driven by industry, um, so probably not a lot of insight into that, um, much less influence on that. And so I think that you'll see a, a, a clear, uh, you'd need to see some kind of relationship again between the three of those uh, moving forward. And also the maturation level of the investment that they conduct within their universities. Again, more near-term based, maybe they need to start uh, the investment uh, opportunities. I think they, their total R&D investment strategy is less than 25% of our Department of Defense investment on an annual basis. And that's their combined uh, private and government research. So, you know, how, how will that uh, play out over time will be interesting. Industry. Uh, we've met uh, <coughs> both times that we've been over, we've talked to their traditional uh, OEMs. They're heavy industries that do defense applications. Uh, in the conversation with them about how they feel about uh, the easing of the three Ps, there's a lot of, I'd say, wait, we're waiting on government. Um, I don't know if that is uh, an indication of their culture to be more reserved in terms of how much they reveal or whether that's actually the case. But either way, I think that is certainly an issue that, uh, that, that is both an opportunity and a, and a risk for or a partnership. Um, the other thing is, uh, as we grow our partnership in defense uh, exports and, and collaboration, the Department of Defense flows down our requirements, including cybersecurity, uh, onto our, our extended supply chain, which would include our partners in this case. And I think that those offer uh, a challenge space for, for uh, their, their industry partners to, to, to grab hold of over time. Uh, when it comes to innovation, it's not clear when we're talking to their heavy industry how much anticipation they're doing, uh, so leading the target, so to speak, being able to anticipate where the Japanese uh, defense forces are going to want to go and then focusing their R&D in the future 
uh, perspective on that. So that, that's an interesting observation to look forward on. And then lastly, culture. Um, it's kind of how I would uh, summarize, uh, you know, their, their culture seems to be of pride related to uh, both working in the large OEMs. Um, in talking to smaller industry, there's not a lot of pride either in manufacturing uh, from a family perspective or working for a small or medium company. Uh, innovation and that competitive nature, uh, you know, with the way the Japanese government seems to pick a specific company to do it, I think is going to play out over time in terms of their ability to respond and the ability to partner uh, because innovation uh, prompts cost competitiveness. And that is one of the things that we hear out of our, our, our U.S. industrial-based partners is the ability for them to be cost competitive on their technology. They're not, I don't think they're used to having to be cost competitive in that cutting edge technology realm. So I think that that is gonna be something that offers an opportunity and a risk to the partnership over time. But the defense pride is the one that, um, the acceptance of the pivot, I think, if, uh, if the issues that we talked about earlier were time and the compression of time is the biggest uh, threat to national security of the future because of the rapid advancement of technology, then you'd have to look at the issues related to culture and overcoming uh, the national mindset of why we need to pivot is possibly one of their greatest challenges that they face and also one of the greatest opportunities that we face in maybe helping them. So I'd, I'd leave that. There's a few opportunities that from that initial perspective that we have a chance to partner with and help grow the partnership on that is beyond S&T and IP issues that might uh, uh, cause uh, greater uh, challenges. One is just grow helping them grow their organizational structure and their business sense about how to do defense procurement and export. Um, I, you know, exchange rotations of ATLA into uh, ATNL or whatever future structure that is, is it's probably one that needs to continue uh, that, that pacing that we've had this past year. Um, Jim talked a little bit about sustainment. Um, cutting their, their teeth on logistics and sustainment uh, might be a way, the, the JSF and sustainment of that and logistical centers might be a first tranche of, of uh, growing their competencies in, in defense export over time, right? Um, and certainly an innovative culture of the up and coming generation, uh, bringing them, exposing them to uh, our innovative culture, like what we see out at DIUX, we've talked to our VC, community is, and others about possibly working closer with the, the young emerging companies out of there, exposing them to opportunity space here so that you accelerate that um, acceptance, so to speak. And while we hear a lot about the, um, the fact that, they're so, that they are somewhat stovepiped in their defense industry versus their commercial, I'd offer that that's not too unlike what we face today in our defense industrial base. We're very heterogeneous. We're not monolithic. With the exception of the name at the OEM level, our extended supply chain relies very much on uh, a commercial basis. Um, the majority of our industrial base, uh, 10, 20 percent of their business is towards the Department of Defense, and the rest of that is towards commercial opportunities. So I don't view that there are challenges necessarily in a, unlike uh, our defense industrial base. I think their largest challenge is going to be across the cultural chasm of making it okay to acknowledge that they do business in the defense, uh, in support of defense industries where it overlays into that commercial room. Great. Thank you, Adele. Uh, no less valuable, uh, your, your input, uh, for sure. And, you know, that point you made 
about leading the target in terms of identification of, of key areas that the, the warfighter the warfighters will need a couple of years down the line uh, reminded back to me linking to uh, dr. Uh, Hokozono's remarks about the technological surveys and the inter the, the, the role that the survey plays in, in trying to help identify this um, this defense R&D uh, agenda um, let me turn to uh, Farhad uh, sure. next um, I mean one of the areas that ATLA or MOD early on identified as one of the areas of, of defense procurement they wanted to pursue beyond domestic was international and joint development. Um, and that connects to, to some, of the, some of the issues that, uh, that you've been working on uh, for sure. many years. And, and it's interesting that we started from a very macro level with Pierre and then we moved down to the nitty gritty regulatory process that is uh, what I'm going to be talking to you. Uh, about which, um, you know, over time has taken on more significance uh, in inbound investment uh, into the United States. And to the extent that we are talking about a, uh, an extended program of defense collaboration, it, it does need to be uh, based at least in part on a solid foundation for uh, welcomed inbound investment into the United States from a national security perspective and vice versa. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that we have seen, and I will get into the CFIUS discussion, but one of the things that we have seen develop over, uh, over the past few, few years, not only in the United States and Japan, in the United States has been around, the National Security Review of Foreign Direct Investment has been around for, for quite some time now, but we are seeing more and more other countries that are also developing an FDI review process, so much so that it's becoming not only a U.S. regulatory risk that we advise clients on, but when you are talking about an inbound uh, uh, investment or an outbound investment, more rather, from Japan into the United States, very often there are other subsidiaries and, and components that trigger a requirement to have a broader macro-level perspective on FDI, uh, that goes beyond the United States. Uh, but uh, as I said, I mean, the CFIUS process has been around uh, for quite some time. As you all know, it is the, uh, it's the uh, national security re review process for foreign direct investment in the United States. It's conducted by the executive branch. There are multiple agencies that are involved in this Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's chaired by the Treasury Department. Uh, and it has grown in prominence over the past few years, uh, so much so that it has become a, a, a fear factor when you're talking with uh, a lot of sources of foreign direct investment into the United States. I'm very happy to report to you that with respect to inbound Japanese investments over the past few years, uh, it has not been a, uh, a significant consideration. It is an important consideration, but it has not become a regulatory hurdle uh, as it could have become um, you know, if if uh, if the government has so, so chosen to, to to make it such, but it it has been a. Uh, in fact, when you look at the history of CFIUS reviews over the past few years, the last reported year that we have is 2014. In 2013, Japan was the second largest source of foreign direct investment reviews that th went through the CFIUS process. In 2014, it was the fourth largest source of foreign direct investment uh, into the United States. And I can just tell you from our experience at White and Case, uh, there has been a considerable number of Japanese inbound investments uh, that have been reviewed by the committee over the past couple of years since the last report has come out. And, you know, but for a 
very few exceptions that actually triggered a CFIUS-based mitigation to allow the transaction to proceed. For the most part, the transactions have been approved uh, uh, without much resistance or hurdle uh, through the through the government. So uh, the the process has been quite successful. It's it's been uh, it, it hasn't resulted in in extensive. Uh, uh, back and forth really with the government on any of the transactions, again, as I said, except for a handful. And as far as we can see um, that there is, despite all the discussions that are going on right now about tightening up the CFIUS process, whether it's through a GAO report that is going to be issued in, in a few months to expand the scope and membership of CFIUS, uh, whether it's through uh, some of the more extensive discussions about broadening the scope of CFIUS from national security to also uh, look at a net benefits test that our expectation and the way that we are seeing uh, the treatment of inbound investments from, uh, from Japan, that we don't expect that to have really a material consequence on the flow and on the result of the CFIUS uh, process uh, for these companies that go through the system. As a, as a side issue on that, I think that for defense collaboration, it's also very important to touch on another regulatory process, um, and that is mitigation of foreign ownership control or influence, or FOCI, through the National Industrial Security Program. Uh, this is a separate body of law. It is distinct from the CFIUS process. It feeds onto the CFIUS process as part of the review of the Committee for National Security Concerns, but it is a separate mechanism whereby companies that are under foreign ownership control or influence can get security clearances to do classified work for the government. I can tell you that there are already a number of participants, uh, Japanese companies, in, in the FOCI program at the Department of Defense. Uh, we've been involved with a number of them, and um, uh, it's been it's been quite successful, and in fact, getting uh, companies uh, sponsored and walking them through the adjudication process at the Department of Defense um, has been quite successful. Uh, and I and I don't expect this um, to to be in any way changing over the next uh, couple of years, as I think that this defense collaboration is going to be, uh, uh, be be growing. So I think that's enough. Terrific. No, thank you. Um, and I have some follow-up <coughs> questions for you, too, uh, as we go forward. So before I turn it over to the audience, there's a couple of questions um, that I'd like to, to pose to, to some people here. And anybody can jump in uh, if they want to. The, the first question kind of gets to, which maybe I should have talked about in my introduction, is, is why do this? Um, what are the benefits to pursuing greater uh, U.S.-Japan collaboration in this area. I would assume, and and some have touched on some of these issues. Certainly, cost. Um, they, it, at, at times, it can it can uh, improve cost uh, competitiveness, sharing the risk, um, technological improvements, uh, better technological outcomes, uh, speed potentially in terms of development through through collaboration, um, interoperability. Uh, uh, benefits and uh, potentially uh, market benefits in terms of collaboration gives you per potentially better access to both uh, markets. And I wonder, perhaps uh, Jim or Pierre uh, and others can, can jump in, are there, are there other things I'm missing? Are there any components of that list that, are, uh, that you find have been kind of more attractive than others or generally played out as advantages of this kind of, of 
joint collaboration? And one, I would just add diversity of thought and, and the, the, pers the, the cultural differences and perspectives uh, really, if you look at them the right way, if you look at them in one, one way, they're, they're, they're a challenge. But I've, I've found it fascinating the, uh, the, the uh, breakthroughs that you can achieve by looking at the, a problem from different angles. And the specialties that the Japanese industries have are different than the specialties that we have, in it, it, whether it be in design or producibility. But there's so many problems to be solved in, in reaching the goals that we're trying to reach that I think uh, that's one of the, the most compelling arguments. And, and I hear it from our commercial sector all the time is the, the, the benefit that they, they receive from that collaboration. And, and Jim's point is, really critical from the perspective of third offset. Everyone has jumped to the technological solutions really quickly when you know, most very thoughtful people about the top will sit there and say, whoa, it's more about the concepts of operations and how we think through it. You know, what problem are you trying to solve? Mm. And then I'll find out what the answer is and maybe half of the answers may be technological as opposed to, again, different concepts of operations. and. Japan's going to look at, you know, one is going to have a different set of problems, right? Or, or the problems that overlap with us will be different than other allies, and so therefore we'll have certain insights. I think the other key difference between that list, which is in some ways is a, the cost is a traditional list. We've used that for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, Adele's point about the increasing clock speed and cycle time that in some ways if we're going to match that or 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 keep accelerating um, you could have thrown away almost half of those things on that list and said you know what I'll still develop it on my own and I, I want to do it and oh by the way the US has enough money that if they wanted to could develop on its own and now that's getting less and less of, of uh, a degrees of freedom if the clock cycles are moving faster and faster. And so the ability to tap into what's already there, what's being thought of, um, uh, becomes relevant as, as we decide which places, what parts do we want to keep indigenous, as Japan will as well. There are certain technologies Japan will just sit there and say, no, this is too important for our sovereignty. You know, we're, we're going to keep this for ourselves. But there's a big enough overlap pool, I think, that will help solve that, that clock speed problem. Yeah. Um, kind of a couple quick more follow-on questions in this genre. I've heard from a Japanese perspective, if now you, from Japanese companies, they say, okay, the U.S. foreign markets are, are open targets. Um, but competing in the U.S. marketplace is incredibly difficult. Uh, the, the differentiator uh, may not be uh, 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 so large um, in terms of, you know, finished products and trying to export products. Uh, and, and in many of the other uh, developing countries, maybe the Japanese equipment is just too expensive. Uh, they, the technology is really good. But um, so I wonder, from your perspective, in some of these ideas of joint development or, or collaborative work, is the U.S. market still um, the a, 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 an attractive target, or, or do we think the future of U.S.-Japan collaboration is more about U.S. and Japanese companies working together to serve other markets, potentially selling back to Japan, but also a, a wider, uh, diverse range of markets, or is it is it more to compete domestically in the U.S.? Perspective. It's a really good question, and I think it's a, sort of a double, uh, sort of two-pronged two response. One is from a purely uh, 
business growth and business opportunity standpoint, so the global market is is bigger, is is growing, and is an attractive market for for less than the most competitive, most advanced capability. So there there would be an interest if the extent that the Japanese partner could open up markets due to special access or or uh, producibility at a lower cost, or, or maybe a third party w along with Japan <coughs> for local localization. But I still think the main alliance interest is, is really in the U.S. and Japan's market for top end, really advanced, third, third offset type capability. Uh, it's a muscle that we haven't developed very well that we're going to need to have in the future in our alliance. And it's easy to say, well, it's too hard, it's too competitive, and it is right now. But if we if we are deliberate in it and we develop that that muscle and we do it and, detract, and drive costs down and drive uh, responsiveness up, uh, I think we'll have something worth. I mean, from a policy standpoint and from a business standpoint, mm -hmm. that's that's valuable in the future. Thanks, um, Adele. I wanted to ask uh, kind of a follow-on question uh, for you um, on the U.S. side, given your your experience here. How proactive? I don't have a good feel for how proactive the Defense Department or the U.S. government is it kind of shaping the the supply, the international supply base? You know, you described about this kind of diversification of the, 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 the supply chain and, and the U.S. defense industrial base. Does, does the U.S. government try to manipulate that or shape or steer it in certain directions? And I'm asking that with implications for as Japan uh, potentially begins to, you know, further diversify its base in that regard, what do they need to think about um, from, what, from what you've learned? So, so I'll, I'll quote one of our OEMs at uh, a recent forum. Our defense industrial base is healthy when our customer, the Department of Defense, is healthy because how we spend is how they respond. So we shape through procurement, right? Mm. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of the relationship with Japan and the U.S., I think going back to your, the question that preceded this one, you know, which direction is it going to go? Okay, probably both, right? Um, but why do we do it? Because uh, at the end of the day, it, it is your presence and your relationships that really allow you to, to leverage and, and, and optimize the, the capabilities of both sides. If we're not going to own an, uh, our defense industrial base wholly within the U.S., then it's, up, then it's in critical for us to develop uh, allies that we can lean on uh, with confidence. And, and so growing that partnership through... Uh, in this case with Japan, uh, on, on business uh, relations and other aspects, increases uh, our, our confidence in each other in that uh, shared defense supply chain. Thank you. Um, and my last question before we turn it over, uh, Farhad, I wanted to ask, I, I would assume you've had a decent amount of experience in this realm with, uh, in, this, in the defense realm with European companies first. And, and I wonder if there's been if you've noticed kind of a, a, an evolution or a trajectory of how that process evolves in terms of when that kind of investment first starts coming in and then uh, begins to, to evolve as it, it matures or uh, becomes almost more indigenized or, or uh, connected in terms of partners. Uh, I wonder if you could tell a little bit of your experience on the on the European side and, sure. and how you know, that the, might translate. The, the, there, if you, if you Look at it from a macro level, there are really two models that, that companies have uh, have adopted. And I think that the first model has been far, 
very logically far more successful than the second. Uh, the first model is a company that comes into the United States, um, either sets up a greenfield or gets sponsored by a uh, subsidiary that is either being sponsored for a security clearance or already has a clearance, sets up a mitigation structure, and then spends a great deal of effort um, blending in to the system and making it pretty clear that um, they are, yes, they might have a technology or a product base that is, at the end of the day, the core of it may be, may be, may be foreign, but they really do make an affirmative effort to uh, Americanize their U.S. subsidiaries and really hold themselves out. And, and they focus on getting the right management structure in place, focus in getting the right um, consultants and advisors in terms of penetrating the U.S. market and different areas of the market. And then there have been other companies that, uh, for whatever reasons, have not been able to uh, really put on an American face uh, as they've come into the market. And, I, and I, what, what has been clearly the, uh, the, the trend with those companies that over time, um, their ability to, to continue to be successful in this market has been significantly diminished. I, I, I think I would just add on to that and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there's also a difference between whether you're doing a, an OEM product where, where the flag is visible on the product as opposed to being a subcontractor inside uh, and part of the supply chain. Absolutely, right, but you know, the, but the OEMs are not, the, most of these inbound invest, investments, the companies are really at the second, first or the second tier. Uh, but even at that level, I mean, you can see in their approach to uh, approaching the, the government customers, for instance, the DOD, who is it exactly that they put on the front line and who is carrying the flag for the company? And that, that has made a significant difference, in my view. So I'd like to augment that comment with, at the uh, Japanese air show recently, going through the expo and I saw uh, Subaru on, on a helicopter and I went, when Subaru get in the helicopters, <laughs> right? Because uh, that's not how we know them, right? We know them by great XUVs here. But their parent corporation had decided to leverage that 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 name, that brand recognition, and I'm assuming uh, because that name carries a, a a good recognition here, and they're, they're going to leverage that over time to create inroads uh, into the U.S. on other platforms that may be less recognizable underneath their parent corporation. Terrific. Well, we have a few minutes left for uh, questions from the audience, and we'll start with the host. Um, Do you need a microphone? <laughs> Great panel, wonderful panel. Um, I'm going to focus on the question that arose. Jim Armington raised it first, but I think it's scattered all the way through this discussion, and that's incentivizing and, the, and, and providing incentives. Here we've got this uh, amazing relationship that can develop between U.S. and Japan in developing these kinds of technologies and systems. We have it, we have the sort of seeds of it, we want it to grow and blossom. What, for each of the panelists, what is the proper role for the federal government in the most constructive role the federal government can play in this? Notice I don't say DOD, I'm saying the federal government here. Um, now, on the one hand, of course, at the one end, there is always the issue of the federal government becoming too pushy in ways that alienate and become a challenge politically for Jap Japanese cooperation and collaboration. At the other end, however, there is 
I think, too, the, the worry of trying to lead from behind uh, in ways that basically don't really sort of get this party started in important ways, except in sort of small, discrete batches. As some of you know, uh, I've been working for some time on the idea and advocate of a, of a U.S.-Japan defense trade cooperation treaty. And in, to, to make a long story short, the response that I will get when I talk to uh, people at DOD about this is, well, we don't really sort of feel like it's an industry priority. When you talk to industry people, they say, we don't really feel like it's a DOD priority. Chicken and egg, right? That's, so that is, I think, the other side of the coin. Now, from the point of view of Adele mentioned my book, Freedom's Forge. One of the things to keep in mind is, is that development of the arsenal democracy, that it wasn't very much the Great Britain that led the way there, that cleared the path, that opened up the kinds of technologies and the production lines that made it possible to create the arsenal democracy, where you had the British government just going to companies like Lockheed and North American and sort of saying, build us some planes. Um, and in, in the case of the British government, they went to Lockheed, they went to North, uh, North America, and they said, can you make us uh, uh, Curtis uh, uh, P-40s? Because we need those for our frontline fighters. And the CEO, Dutch Kindleberger of North America, and he says, I can build you a much better plane than the, than the P-40. He said, give me a few weeks, and I'll come up with a, with a plan. Planes, we'll build a prototype. You fly it around, see what you think. And what the British got was the P-51 Mustang. So now, obviously, that's a very different environment in terms of defense procurement and the role of companies here. But it does suggest that there are ways in which a US government perhaps can be pathfinder in developing this in specific ways. And I feel like this is a panel that could point to some of those specific ways. You know, I can start with one very, and it's, it's, it's in, in a very sm small specific sector. Um, as I talked about foci mitigation, for instance, mitigation of foreign ownership so a company can hold a security clearance, there is a migration in the analysis uh, by the Department of Defense, the Defense Security Service, for instance, towards a risk-based analysis versus a more of a structure which, which was predominantly based on saying, okay, if you're a majority foci, here are the two options. If you're a minority foci, here are the two options. I think that the risk-based analysis, if it's properly engaged and applied, that, that, that structures a mitigation structure to be truly reflective of the risk that comes with that foreign ownership by a Japanese company, that could be very helpful in encouraging more and more companies to come into the classified market and, and being involved in that. So uh, incentive is exactly the right word to be using, right? Because if, it, if it's reform or attempts by prescription or creating yet another agency or, you know, changing a box or whatever, you're not going to, you won't get there. And if you think about the examples that you used as well as even more, you know, more recent examples, um, the, the incentive that has generated the most amount of reaction um, has been around the pursuit of, of programs and opportunities to compete, right? And if, uh, and if, if you want to do it in such a way, and, and once again, this, this now taps into some of the, the third offset perspective, if, if the government can, can create the frameworks, 
whether that's the IP rules, the, uh, the rules relative to um, the export control laws, et cetera, just like the US-UK treaty did, right, in terms of trying to create a framework that let the industry commit, but then say nothing about exactly what it's done around. And, and the answer and, and the opportunity set is, I have a problem in maintaining air dominance in blank, and whoever can come up with an answer, right, or the best answer, that's who I will buy it from, as opposed to being prescriptive, the industry naturally will then go around the world and try to find the answer for it, right? Three out of the four MRAP designs, I have a problem with IEDs and I need something to solve that problem. You know the story, three out of the four designs were non-US designs, you know, non-US technologies, but were manufactured at scale here, right? And I and and that is probably the you know the and the areas the, that we've identified where there's natural Japanese technologies or deep underlying capability sets. I would argue that as long as it's not prescribed, if you cannot use foreign technology in order to solve this problem, the Boeing's and the Lockheed's of the world will search the world for it to find the answer to in order to deliver it in right. And even more likely, you're going to have a second tier player who wants to try to unseat the incumbent fishing around because they have less to lose, frankly, right? So the, the best set of incentives is around creating points of competition, right, I would argue. I think you're, uh, you're pretty much in the end, you answered your question uh, when you said be the pathfinder. I think the, for the, what, what, are you, what the gov government should be doing or should be focused on to help incentivize industry. Right now, we need a pathfinder. And collaboration, U.S.-Japan collaboration on a, on a project like the SM3 project that actually was conceived back in the 90s when I was in OSD policy. I remember the difficulty getting traction behind a policy. Missile defense cooperation was a policy-driven uh, as opposed to acquisition-driven uh, decision. On the acquisition side, it really wasn't practical. It was challenging. It was, it was, there were all kinds of reasons why we should just do it ourselves in the United States. But policy driving toward a missile defense cooperation pushed it. And I remember some, some very heated arguments within the Pentagon, one all the way to the SECDEF, to, to establish that, no, this was in the interest of the alliance. We're going to do this. And I think it's going to take that. Initially, it's going to take that kind of, of, of foresight and, and a political will um, to, to exercise the muscles to, to, to realize. The, uh, and of, course, of course, it has to be carefully chosen which sector we're going to, we're going to find this path in, but being the pathfinder, I think, will reassure industry, both in the U.S. and Japan, that it's worth the risks, that there's a future there, and it's something that we want to, we want to be involved in. So in, in, in our engagement with them and in their engagement with us, we have found them hugely enthusiastic uh, in, in their questioning about how we do business and also in uh, their interest and inquiries in uh, the Manufacturing USA Institute centered on uh, which were public-private collaborations between the all of government on our side with industry to help uh, create healthy ecosystems on new emerging <coughs> technologies. In th we c our all of government approach is one that we, we could work with them on in terms of uh, in within their um, 
their ecosystems to help them overcome some of the cultural or accelerate their, their, their uh, what, what I call a sufficiently fragmented industrial base between universities, industry, and, and uh, the government on emerging technologies that are, in, that are in this case necessary for the next realm of national security for them. And those would offer not only a whole of government approach from our side in terms of collaboration, but a whole of government approach from their side, which would hopefully accelerate some of the issues that we've talked about today. Thank you. Uh, let's take another question. Mindy? Um, Mindy Cutler, I direct a small think tank called Asia Policy Point, and I work a bit in the weeds of Japanese politics. And it concerns me that this that the discussion that our assumption of Japanese US cooperation assumes that the Japanese do want to actually cooperate. If you look at 80% or more of the Japanese cabinet, they're members of organizations that are basically against cooperation and want an independent Japanese defense. Historically, what you are finding that the, um, the Japanese defense industry hasn't changed in maybe 80, 90 years. It's still Mitsubishi, Kawasaki, Sumitomo, and all the new names are just names that from bigger conglomerates. And they have the baggage these companies like Mitsubishi, of having used Americans and allied POWs as slave labor and never apologizing. So there's a lot of baggage that these companies bring to the table of wanting to have an independent defense, want to have the independent manufacturing, want to avoid their legacy. Um, I. And I don't see anyone trying to approach some of that. Well, I'm not sure what the question is. Um, I mean, the 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 there, there's all you kinds. Yeah. And you don't really have a contrite industry that wants to really cooperate. Well, and do we? Does the American Defense Department want to be cooperating with companies that still don't respect American soldiers? Well, if any of the panel want to uh, to, to feel that, I, I think all the evidence is to the contrary that the Japanese industry and Japanese government does want to uh, cooperate. That's why they changed uh, the the rules and and the laws. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll jump on this one. Um, uh, so one. We have been cooperating for the last 30 or 40 years, right? We've been doing licensed production, and there's there's been deep cooperation between both U.S. and, and Japanese industry of a particular type that's been going on since 50s, 60s, um, right? And, and and so the I think what's at stake or what's of interest is in terms of 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 uh, of turning around and sort of you know growing them forward. Um, frankly, the U.S. industry hasn't changed in 80 years. It's all the same. I can draw every single, the top, in fact, that this is something I've looked at. You can take a look at the top 10 defense contractors and, it's, and I draw the linkage all the way back to the 1920s, right? The only time that we've had changes in the U.S. defense industrial landscape is when a new technology has come about. So with the advent, I can trace every single one of the aircraft companies back to the 20s. I have new defense companies when there's this thing called a microchip invented and suddenly I add Texas Instruments, Hughes, Raytheon to the ranks. And the only other time 
time I've had a change in that top 10 has been in the last 10 years when I've had a policy shift with the service companies added on. So um, the fact that, that there's a, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to dismiss the fact, you know, some of these issues, but there's, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that there's a historical legacy. I, th I think the, the reason why we're here and why we're having this conversation is because of the broader technolo uh, the tectonic shifts that are going on in the landscape. I mean, these are these are this is these are brave new world times, you know. Um, I, 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 you can even pick November eighth as, uh, you know, that's oh so November seventh in in terms of thinking that you know the, that now that we're we're on this side of the of the landscape in terms of what's going on, both from uh, an adversary standpoint, a geopolitical standpoint, technological standpoint. That's that, that's what's at the heart of what everybody's trying to struggle with. And guess what? It's going to be a disorienting environment. But therein lies the opportunity. Opportunity set, right? That's the that's the opportunity. Frankly, is that uh, um, and this is once again. I I would point out. I think I don't need a hundred percent consensus. If we wait for all the government to come up with the perfect landscape and set all the programs down and have everybody happy and have everything done, then I will, we will have missed the opportunity set, right? The opportunity is, fi is finding it in the, is in finding it inside the disruptive elements um, to create something that wasn't, that wasn't there before. Yep. So don't want to be dismissive of these topics, right? They're all things that have to be overcome um, or worked around. But uh, it strikes me that the demand side is, is going to start to overwhelm the friction of the resistance because it, it's needed to, you know, because it's because of the imperative that's out there. Are, are we out of Okay. It's your show. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, our next panel reconvenes at uh, 3.15. Um, just on the point of view of American view of Japanese com companies, I think that view has changed dramatically over the last 20 years now. And I think from the point of view of when people think about Japanese companies now, they think about companies like Honda and Toyota and Nissan building plants in the United States, bringing in cool new technologies, providing jobs. It's a very, very different you know, environment for thinking about that. When people think about a company like Kawasaki, they think about let the good times roll and about motor motorcycles. Not about the not about a World War II legacy, and I think from a from a CFIUS point of view and the Fokai point of view, this is an advantage that Japanese companies can really pounce on, particularly in the defense area, since so many of these technologies we're talking about have very limited lethality, and are in fact in many ways ways in which you bring nonviolent kinds of uh, technologies to bear in situations that could turn violent and lethal without being shut down or without being interfered with in the process or being surveyed by it, uh, that this is a chance for Japanese companies also to take advantage of their commercial reputation as a way of extending and building their links in, the, in, the, in, in, more, in more defense and security systems too. Yeah. No, well, thank you uh, very much. I think I should probably wrap up our session so we, we give the next panel a chance to start on time. Um, a lot of opportunity, clearly a lot of challenges. Um, we haven't, we've only begun to, to scratch the surface a little bit, but uh, I just want to thank our members of our panel for, for sharing their wisdom with us and, and for you hosting us. Thank you. Thank you.